Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books and Literature, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm G.P. Gottlieb, host of this channel, and today I'm talking to former McDonald's general counsel and author Shelby Yastro, who together with professional golfer Tony Jacklin wrote the novel Bad Lies. Published in 2018 by Mascot Books, Bad Lies tells the story of fictional pro golfer Eddie Benenson and his legal battle against a major golf magazine, published a series of articles accusing him of cheating and using performance-enhancing drugs. These articles destroy Benison's career, and he sues the magazine and its corporate owner. Even those with only a passing acquaintance with the legal world will be drawn into the cunning dance of lawyers who try to choreograph every aspect of the trial before they ever stand before a judge and jury. And as if you were on that jury you'll want to cast your vote for truth and justice. But justice isn't always so clear. Shelby Astro began writing books based on civil lawsuits while working as an executive for the McDonald's Corporation. He started at McDonald's in 1978 as vice president and chief counsel of litigation, and in 1982 became general counsel and executive vice president. Yastro's first book, Undue Influence, was published in 1991. It was about a court battle based on an actual 1963 case regarding an $8 million will and reached number seven on the Chicago Tribune bestseller list. His second novel, Under Oath, published in 1994, concerned a malpractice case based on other issues he had previously litigated. Yastro also wrote a nonfiction book, Vision to Legacy, about franchising and the history of Great Clips, the world's largest hair salon franchiser. In 2016, Yastra, also a golfer, became friends with professional golfer Tony Jacklin, who adds insight into the complex world of professional golf described in the novel. The recipient of many awards, Jacklin was honored in 1970 by Queen Elizabeth, who gave him the title of Commander of the British Empire. And now I'd like to welcome author Shelby Yastro to the New Books in Literature podcast. 
Hi, Shelby. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. Right. So first of all, I'd like to start out by asking you if you could talk a little bit about how you came to write this book and how it happened that one of the greatest golfers of his generation became your co-writer. Yeah, it's a good question because people are always surprised that I started writing books when I became an, after I became an executive at McDonald's Corporation. The fact is that everyone, especially lawyers, always think that there's a book in them somewhere. And I found myself having so much time to kill because I traveled a lot. I was on airplanes and hotels flying all over. And I was trying to come up with the idea of a book, but one day I was in New York talking to some advertising executives and somewhere along the line got to tell them a story about a case I had back in the 60s. And a couple of people remarked what a great novel that would be. So I went back to my hotel room and started writing that very night uh, about that case. But I, I changed the situation a lot, but the same points have always been followed. Case. And that became undue influence, which was recent actual bestseller list. It was very flattering and unexpected. Okay, and then you wrote a second book, a novel. Yes, after my first book did a nice job in sales, uh, I had some uh, demands or requests to write more. So I wrote a book, another civil case. I don't write about murders. Um, and this was a medical malpractice trial woman suing her doctor after she has a child with birth defects and uh, and that was called under oath and that was those were the two novels I had previously written and then how did you happen to write a book about golf well I really like golf it's been a passion of mine since I was really a young kid and there are really no decent books out there about golf in the mystery genre or, or courtroom. And so I thought for some time about what kind of civil case could I have involving golf in a courtroom situation. And the, uh, the sports pages over the last several years have been filled with stories about performance enhancing drugs for Lance Armstrong, Barry Bonds and others. And, uh, in 2008, the Professional Golf Association started drug testing on the professional tour. And so I thought that might be good, but I also uh, brought in allegations of alleged cheating by our hero. And he brought a libel suit, that's defamation of character. Uh, for those who might not know, libel and slander are basically the same thing, but libel is when the lies are written Slander is where they are uttered verbally. And he mm -hmm. brings this lawsuit against the publisher magazine and its owners. And the book is really the trial. It starts, first page of the book is the first day of the trial. And one thing that makes writing about lawsuits uh, either easier or more readable is that you can start right in the middle of the action in the trial and then bring out all the background through the witness's testimony as to what happened. Whereas when you don't have a courtroom situation, you kind of have to go back and set up all the background the first chapter or two, which sometimes is interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's why writing through the courtroom lens really makes for a faster start. 
I thought that the book's biggest tension was between First Amendment rights and the damage done by reckless reporters. What What did you think? Well, I'm I'm glad that you caught the uh, the drift of the book, namely that the First Amendment can be freedom of speech, freedom of the press can be used as a sword as well as a shield. And uh, in my experience, in my professional life, I've discovered that the press, whether through neglect or deliberately, I hate to say that, but maybe it's true, um, misstates facts to sell papers or increase the listenership, and uh, or at least embellish the facts. So uh, I wanted to bring out how in a trial this could create terrible problems in that a reporter can write a story based on hearsay, based on a few tidbits of information, based on his own supposition, instead of hard facts. And then in the repetition of the story, it becomes fact and uh, mm-hmm. accepted fact. And this is especially dangerous in some of our jurisdictions where reporters are not required to name the sources of their information. They're allowed, for example, in Illinois, where this trial takes place, Chicago, uh, the law is that a reporter need not disclose his sources. So a reporter can get up and say, well, somebody told me that uh, Galit is a communist. Well, who told you that? Well, I don't have to, I can't tell you. So now you've got that terrible damning allegation out there without any support and people tend to believe it because it was written down and and yet there is no substantiation which could ruin lives and careers. Yeah, I was shocked about it when I was reading about, about this character. How did you come up with the idea for uh, the reporter Max Reed? Just based on general situations where this happened? That is the subject of a defamation libel suit then I have to have the reporter who wrote the article try to defend it. And uh, I created Max Reed for this role, who I tried not to make too sleazy, but uh, by the time he's done being cross-examined by Charlie Mayfield, who is actually the hero of the book more than the golfer, uh, Charlie Mayfield is, is the golfer's lawyer, um, Max Reed is is uh, now shown in his true character as a devious person who was just trying to impress his editors um, with a story that uh, is cool. Uh, one of your many executive positions at McDonald's was as longtime corporate spokesperson, and I know you told me that you were close with Ray Kroc, so. How did you handle reporters who, in writing stories about your company, McDonald's, embellished the truth or ruined the truth or sidled the truth? When you say, how did I handle them, that's probably, I wish I could have handled some of them. But uh, there's there's two ways to approach these. It's like the old song, no one to hold them and no one to fold them. Um, sometimes the best thing you could do with a story is ignore it. Because if you come back and deny it, then you're reminding people that those allegations are out there. And uh, 
And it's especially true when you're involved with a company like McDonald's, which is kind of a household word. So if a story were to come out about nutrition, for example, um, and we have a lot of stories to tell on that, good stories, it might be better not to respond and start saying McDonald's denies that its food is unhealthy or something like that. Um, because the denial itself repeats the assertion. Um, and yet, sometimes you have to make a phone call without doing it publicly and try to straighten the record out. And, um, and reporters are um, reasonable people. I mean, they're, 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 they're fine uh, in most cases. We went through that with the recent movie about Ray Kroc called The Founder. It was, it was totally false. Uh, the allegations about him were, were uh, evil and tragic. And when I went to the, because I knew, knew the facts, I was involved in the situation that was covered by the movie, I went to the producer, uh, three of us, and um, through a spokesperson to try to get the producer to change the story. And he told us to, you know, go away. He ignored us. It was rude. It was Harvey Weinstein. So we, uh, you can't really handle them. You just want to get the facts out there and hope somebody reports them accurately. And most people try to. I think more, more of the problems are innocent than intentional. Well, that's positive. Uh, let's get back to the book. Can you explain the meaning of the title, Bad Lies? Yes, Bad Lies is a play on words. It's a game of golf. By the way, the, the uh, protagonist here, Benison, the golfer, this book doesn't require that the reader know anything about golf. He could have just as easily been a baseball player or a cyclist. Uh, uh, but in the golf, the word lie describes the position of the golf ball. And so that a bad lie is where the ball is sitting deep in the turf or the grass or behind a tree or on a sleep, uh, steep slope, excuse me. Uh, and we always say that a golfer has a bad lie. It's a hard shot to hit. And then in the world of libel and defamation, a lie, of course, is a misstatement of truth. And uh, so I thought it would be a good plan for magazine is accused of writing bad lies. And the golfer has to figuratively deal with the bad lie that he got, namely his stories out there putting him behind the tree, behind the eight ball, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, we played around with several titles, but uh, we stayed with that one. Now it makes sense. So one of the accusations against Benison is that he used performance-enhancing drugs. But I thought golf was more about skill rather than strength or speed. So how could a golf game be improved with drugs of any kind? Well, a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, I would say that all sports are a matter of skill, but um, they also require, in many cases, endurance and strength. Take, for example, one of the most widely publicized performance-enhancing drug cases in recent times has been the baseball player Barry Bonds. And uh, baseball, I don't think uh, any drugs could help a baseball player hit a curveball, but once he hits it, he can hit it further because he might have added strength. And the same is true with golf. And 
a golfer who takes these drugs that are now forbidden on the Professional Golf Association tour, uh, he probably wouldn't improve his skill in terms of shaving five yards off of the six hundred or curving a shot around a tree, but it might help him hit the ball another 10 or 15 yards further with just the strength. And also, uh, something that people aren't, I try to make this point in the book, people don't think of golf as a real athletic endeavor. But when you're out there walking six miles, four days in a row under the intense pressure of a tournament, not to talk about time on the rain, getting balls, practicing. Uh, statistics have shown that those who are in better condition play better near the end because it's, you know, it takes a toll on the body. And mm -hmm. steroids can help you during those last several holes be better, perform better than you could without them. Uh, you mentioned, you already mentioned the brilliant Charlie Mayfield, medicine's lawyer. And I'm interested to know, is he based on anybody or did you invent him as the quintessential lawyer who knows exactly how to play the game? <laughs> That's a good question. Exactly both. Um, he is a quintessential lawyer who knows exactly how to play the game. But it's based on a lawyer who I had, uh, with whom I had the privilege of working when I was a very young lawyer myself. Uh, one of the first cases I worked on uh, in my professional career was uh, before I went to McDonald's, but it was a case involving McDonald's in Peoria, Illinois. And it started out as a relatively minor case, but it, it grew um, exponentially into a federal antitrust case. And it was the future of the company dependent on it. And the company we sued, the people we sued started, that was, these were the forerunners of Hardee's. Um, and the lawyer we hired in Peoria was John, his name was John Cassidy. And I described John Cassidy when I described Charlie Mayfield. Gray-haired, overweight, shuffling, carmudgeon, sarcastic, clever, cunning kind of a lawyer who sometimes made as many points with a question as mm. he did with an answer. Mm. And, um, and how he prepped his witnesses so that he knew exactly what they should say, how they should say it, when they should look at the jury, little mannerisms, which is so important for the trial lawyer that people don't usually think about if they're not in the business. And uh, Charlie had a marvelous way of getting evidence in record that maybe shouldn't have been there and uh, throwing snides out about his uh, opponent, opposing lawyers. And he had what we call trust me eyes, those big bloodhound eyes when he talked to the jury. Just, he's an honest, this is a believable person. Uh, probably an antithesis of most politicians, but he is um, everybody's uncle. Very avuncular, wise, funny, humorous guy who, who could... Uh, cut an opposing witness to ribbons with a stiletto, and they wouldn't even know they're being cut up. But his opposing team was also very high-powered. One was a, a, a very respected professor of law, and another one was also a, you know, a, a pretty strong lawyer, pretty strong Chicago lawyer. So my question is, they both prepared their witnesses clearly, and um, 
you illustrated how they helped them prepare to say things correctly in the exact right way. But then all of a sudden the reporters called up and he's so unprofessional. His, I, I wrote this down, his boss calls him the biggest boob since Humpty Dumpty, which is pretty funny. But can you explain that? Yeah, I think I, think I can because of a personal experience. Um, as a lawyer who tried cases quite a bit, I, I did what all lawyers do. We told our witnesses, our own witnesses, when I examine you, there are, uh, you know, answer my questions and listen carefully answer. When the opposing lawyer cross-examines, there are only three answers. Yes, no, or I don't know. You cannot elaborate or embellish the answers. Just answer yes or no. If there's more, I'll bring it out when I get back on the witness stand myself. Max Reed couldn't do that. Max Reed had this pension for volunteering information. And um, they were to say, and, and did you meet with so-and-so? Yes, we met at such and such a restaurant and we talked about thus and so on such and such a date. Just open the door to more questions. Ah, uh, he should have just said yes or no. That's right. I know my own personal experience. Years ago, I was a witness in a lawsuit. And uh, <laughs> I felt trapped myself. You know, state your name. I said, Shelby Yastro. I'm a lawyer. I'm so such and such an age. I got my degree from Northwestern. Such and such a thing. You know, I just, we just are up there. We want to talk. Uh, uh, and it's so hard. So uh, I've learned after I made that mistake myself, that I prep witnesses. I mean, I'm, I'm, it'd be pretty nasty. And I've dealt with some of the greatest lawyers. And I've watched them work. I mean, even telling a witness. Take off that Rolex wristwatch uh, and, and shave that beard off and um, things of that nature because we want to make a certain presentation to the jury. And, uh, and uh, for example, uh, you have a woman in a divorce case who's asking for a lot of money in terms of alimony or property. You don't want her up there in a 1999 dress. You, know, you want her to look like she's accustomed well-heeled life. And it's the same thing. We not only prep the witnesses on their answers, but on their appearance and on their attitude and, and uh, the whole the whole schmear. Very important. Clearly. There was a part that I'd like to hear a little more from you about, um, about what's expected in the game of golf. And there's a little section where Mayfield asks Max Reed, still on the stand, how many clubs he has in his bag. And that's like, it just blows up. Can you talk about that scene? Yes, I can. And it's interesting because you just said Mayfield asked him how many clubs he had in his bag. And Mayfield never asked that question. Could explain that. And that's, that's how he was clever. Um, Max Reed was trying to make the point that golf is a game of honor. It's a gentleman's game. And that, um, we don't need referees or umpires. We call penalties on ourselves. And, uh, and cheating is such a rare thing. And I brought out examples of people who violate the rules accidentally. They're so technical sometimes. And he made a big point when he's being cross-examined and tried to let him into this, that I would never break the rules playing golf. 
So then Charlie asked him if he belongs to this fancy country club, you know, to prejudice the jury a little bit. And uh, and does he play for money and does he play for trophies? Yes, a little bit. And then Charlie said to him, uh, is there a rule about how many clubs players have to play? And Max Reed says, yes. The limit is 14. Can't have more than 14 clubs in your bag. Then Charlie said, would I be lying if I told you that we had someone count the clubs in your bag and there are 16? And that puts the witness in a horrendous situation. Now he knows that somebody's been counting the clubs in his bag. And the question wasn't, do you have that many clubs? The question was, would I be lying if I said you did? But of course, the implication is that he didn't have that many clubs in his bag, no matter how he answered. But how were they How were they able to go and count his clubs in his bag? Isn't that... <laughs> he said in the question, he said, in the book, it says, we had someone go into the bag room of your country club and count the clubs in your bag. Uh, and that's not hard to do. You know, you could call any country club and say, "Would uh, somebody count the clubs in my bag and say, my name is Max Reed. And uh, it's not hard to do. You can go back there and send a caddy or one of the one of the employees down to count the clubs. Uh, and in fact, I've seen that done in tournaments. So uh, that was Charlie's way of getting the fact to the jury that Max Reed himself fudged with the rules while writing damning stories about Eddie Benison, supposedly fudged with the rules. Right. Do, do you know any real cases in which a, profess, a professional golfer has been accused of cheating in any way? Yes, there have been um, several instances of, of golfers accused of cheating. They haven't, to my knowledge, resulted in courtroom lawsuits. But some uh, ended up as hearings before the Professional Golf Association that they worked on among themselves. Um, there's also been a few allegations in more recent years about golfers using performance-enhancing drugs. There are rumors that Tiger Woods has done it, but of course there's no evidence of that for sure. B.J. Singh was penalized for doing that. Um, and. Uh, there was a woman golfer some years ago, Janet Blaylock, who was accused of cheating. Um, and there are several instances where there are allegations of, of certain pros disobeying the rules, whether by claiming uh, the ball was in casual water and taking a free drop as opposed to hitting it from, where, from a bad lie. And some of those have recent sports pages, a couple of accusations against Gary Player for doing that, for example. But no lawsuits as far as I know. And then there was the famous case uh, in the Masters Tournament where Roberto DiVincenzo lost because he had the wrong score on his card and it was put down there by his opponent because each player keeps the other player's score and his opponent wrote a four for Roberto on the 17th hole at Augusta when he had a three. And Roberto signed the scorecard, so he had to accept the four, which meant that he lost the Masters by that one stroke. Because he signed it, and that was assuming that he went through it and looked for any mistakes. 
Yeah, and the number, it was interesting because the number at the end was correct. He shot a 66 or 67 that day, and the total was correct. But if he added up the numbers in the scorecard, it would have been one more, one higher because uh, Tommy Aaron, who kept his score, wrote down the wrong number. So that's how a player can be penalized and lose a golf tournament because it's a trivial mistake that had nothing to do with his skill. And then there was a story of Greg Statler in the Andy Williams Open who his ball came to rest under a bush and it rained on Saturday's round and on Sunday, on, on uh, Saturday, because it rained the night before, he put a towel down and he had to kneel. He didn't want to get his pants wet. So he kneeled, put his knee down on the towel, bent down and from that sweating position, you know, chipped the ball out into the fairway. Amazingly, he finished the round, wrote down his score, and the next day was third in the tournament. But some viewers on TV called in and said he violated rule such and so by improving his stance, and because he had already scored, uh, signed the scorecard for that day, Saturday, and this was discovered on Sunday, disqualified, so he lost everything. So the, the rules in tournament golf are the subject of many terrible stories uh, and and those were just two that reached the, the papers uh, sports pages and there was uh, another woman who just this last year mismarked her ball and was was uh, denied winning a mm -hmm. tournament um, mm -hmm. because she Lexi Thomas Thompson because she moved her ball they showed it with a close-up lens on TV maybe a sixteenth or a quarter of an inch, and not even closer to the hole. You know, just, it's hard to be that precise. And uh, it was a, about a 12-inch putt. But after she made it, the viewers called in. And the next day she was uh, penalized. Well, I don't play golf, but I still found it so fascinating to read these kind of stories of the of what was happening in the novel itself and these extra stories are fa fascinating um could you talk a little bit about your work at mcdonald's specifically your work as chief legal officer just because it's interesting and you you bring so much law into the book so what can you tell us well that's interesting i um i guess i could back up a little bit i got out of law school in 1959 university and um my first two weeks at this law firm in Chicago, a gentleman walks in off the street without an appointment, which is almost unheard of in a large firm. And uh, when he talked to one of the partners, he said, what are you going to do? And the fellow said, I want to start a chain of 15 cent hamburger stands. He immediately said, what kind of jerk is this? Uh, so they called me in as the youngest lawyer in the firm. I'd been two weeks out of school to work on, on this uh, client's matter. And uh, this client happened to be Ray Kroc, who founded McDonald's. Um, and that was, you know, just the luck of the draw. I was walking down the hall to change my life because I did work for him for three years in his law firm. And then some years later, he hired me to come in and take over all the litigation at McDonald's. And I was promoted a few years later to general counsel. That's the chief legal officer of the whole company worldwide. And we're a large company, of course. We were 140 countries time. Uh, but I also, as a member of the top senior executive, top management, uh, uh, 
and other departments before, besides law, reporting to me. They include insurance, transportation, uh, social responsibility, all non-restaurant real estate, government relations, which had to do with lobbying and monitoring and writing legislation. And, uh, and when I say non-restaurant real estate, uh, it's, uh, it's a big job because McDonald's has been the largest owner of real estate for about 35 years now in the country, retail real estate. I'm not talking about places like Georgia mm -hmm. Pacific with acres of timber. And uh, we had just in the United States over 50 offices and worldwide we had about 150 offices or 175 offices. So basically every day we were closing a lease on an office building or a remodel or a revamping. And so I had several people working on all those, this our office buildings, plus the restaurants. When we close a restaurant, sell it, that was under my jurisdiction. And sometimes uh, people don't realize excess property. For example, in, years ago, we wanted to put a McDonald's restaurant in a shopping center, one uh, in uh, Las Vegas, and the owner was not easily persuaded to sign a lease with us. So we ended up buying the whole shopping center. And, uh, and we put in our McDonald's, and now it fell into my department to get rid of the other 90% of the shopping center. Uh, we had the same problem when in Winnetka, Illinois, when we put a drive-in in Winnetka. Uh, it raised a lot of eyebrows and we had to do some of that. So the excess property and the non-restaurant real estate was uh, a big part of my job. Uh, we had, I think at one point, 28 lawyers doing nothing but that. Uh, just the living the restaurant. The uh, non-restaurant real estate. We had uh, over the time we had over 100 lawyers working for the company, so it was it was a pretty big job. But as I say, I spent as much of it in just being on the executive management team. I would be involved with uh, all sorts of non-legal discussions, even discussing new menu items, new advertising campaigns. Uh, whether or not to open restaurants in Russia. Uh, those are all things that I worked on. And uh, and then if we did them, I had to implement them from a legal point of view, like the Russian restaurants. So interesting. So when people think of McDonald's lawsuits, and I, I understand there must have been quite a number of them over the years, but many of us think about the case of the hot coffee spilling. And it was in the 80s. Can you Can you talk about that? About the three million dollar settlement that we all still remember. Well, okay, it was a three million dollar verdict. What, what happened was it was really interesting because I happened to be in my car early that morning, um, going to a board meeting, and my radio was on, and the announcer was talking about a jury in Albuquerque, New Mexico, returned a verdict last night against McDonald's Corporation. My ears burned up when I heard that. Um, Stella Liebig, the plaintiff, was granted about $3 million because hot coffee spilled on her lap. I almost drove off the highway because I didn't know about the case. And let me back up on that because it sounds horrendous that I wouldn't know about it. Uh, we had all sorts of litigation 
franchise issues, antitrust cases, tax cases, real estate cases. And we always had a lot of what we call personal injury cases. But in our situation, they were almost always very minor by, by our standards. In other words, they're slip and fall. Somebody come into a store and slip on a mop floor or something. Uh, I mean, we didn't have the kind of cases where people were killed. Or, but I had a rule that I had to be told about what we called sensitive cases. For example, if a, if a young child was hurt on the playground, you know, kids are our franchise, we can't allow that. Or if somebody allegedly got sick or found a foreign object in the food or something like that, uh, you know, those are the kind of things I'd have to know about. Um, but when somebody claims that they got burned by hot coffee that they themselves spilled, it wasn't alleged or asserted that our employees spilled the coffee or that the lid came off. It was just hot coffee. Uh, nobody mentioned that case to me until I heard about it on the radio. Yeah. And, uh, and remember, we have, when I retired, Billy, we had about 30 million customers every day, just in the United States. So something could go wrong one in a million times. Uh, it happened 30 times a day at McDonald's. So uh, it wouldn't be surprising that I wouldn't know about someone who spilled a little coffee on her, coffee on her lap uh, until the newspapers. Um, as it turned out, we were able to get that case, that verdict, thrown out, and a new trial was ordered by the judge. So there's no liability. And then we elected to settle with Mrs. Liebig for a lot less money. Um, rather than go through the publicity of a new trial because we figured every reporter on the planet would be there. Mm -hmm. So we made a nice settlement with her, and she was very nice. Um, but what happened is she, her son, grandson, excuse me, her grandson had just got a new sports car. And they went through the drive-thru. She ordered a Big Mac and a cup of coffee, which, by the way, was her typical fare there. She did almost every day. And she puts the coffee between her legs on the seat of the car. And while she was opening the Big Mac, uh, her grandson turned down the driveway and turned right on the street. And some of the coffee sloshed onto her lap. Uh, and when we interviewed the jury later, you know, what did we do wrong? Well, nothing, but she was a nice lady and McDonald's could, McDonald's could afford it. And, um, you know, you make that much money every 10 minutes, so give her $3 million. And uh, that's the way the jury system works sometimes <laughs> in, in the United States. We're the only country, by the way, in the world that allows trial by jury as a matter of right in civil cases. In other jurisdictions, England, for example, on which our law is based, a judge may say a case is too complicated for a jury, or uh, there's too much emotion, or it's not necessary. But in the United States, you can get a jury for anything, and most jurors, although the Constitution says a jury by your peers, uh, they're not peers. So most juries, and it's a good system basically, but most people we know get off jury duty. And the people who sit on it are usually retirees or unemployed people. Because um, they get like eight dollars a day or something, and they tend to side with the big uh, with the plaintiffs 
injured party rather than uh, a big corporation. Just that's the nature of the game. So interesting. We just got to hope justice prevails, right? That's the jury system. You know, we saw the O.J. Simpson trial. He, uh, he won the trial, the criminal trial, and then lost the civil case. Uh, the only difference was they were tried in different venues, and he had a uh, African-American predominant jury in one case and a white jury in the other. And uh, people were surprised there was different verdicts, but that's the reality of the game. So I could keep talking to you because you have so many great stories, but I've taken up enough of your time, Shelby, and I'd like to just ask you the traditional new books question. What's next for you? Is there another book in the works? Well, I've been playing with the idea. In fact, I started a book once and I put it aside and I'm, I started messing with it again. I wanted to write a story about, I'll call it um, intrigue in the executive suite. I thought I would have a story about, um, that brought two concepts together. Two executives vying for the top job chairman or CEO of a company. Uh, how they are working against each other, trying to sabotage the other one and lining up uh, other executives to be on their sides. And uh, one of the issues over which they would fight would be an issue of what I call corporate espionage. There's a lot of that, and I got involved with it um, in a way. Uh, for a while, I was in charge of, of, um, of the toys that went into Happy Meals for McDonald's sourcing the toys in China and uh, in the Far East. And um, we would find manufacturers over there to do our little toys for the Happy Meals. And this was a big deal. There were about 75 or 80 million of them a month. And um, I learned in that, the, uh, especially in Asia, the amount of, of theft in terms of intellectual property, trademarks, copyrights, patents, um, and there's just armies of people out there trying to find out what Hallmark's going to do so they can come out with a, with a Christmas tree ornament cheaper and earlier and what McDonald's toys are going to be so uh, Burger King or somebody else could come out with a toy the week before. Mm-hmm. So uh, corporate espionage is kind of an interesting thing and it's almost unheard of in the, to the average person. But just look what's going on with our election and hacking and... Uh, um, cyberspace espionage right now. It's, uh, it's very common. I have a brother who was in the clothing business and there are people out there just stealing designs and patents and, and ideas right and left. So I thought. So what you're saying is there's no shortage of subjects for you to cover in future books. A good friend of mine, Scott Giroux, who helped me a lot, we're still good friends, writes criminal cases along with John Grisham. But I try to show that there's as much drama when people are fighting for their pocketbook as when they're trying to stay out of prison. And, and my first book had to do with a will contest. What could be more mundane? But there's a lot of drama. Well, thank you so much for sharing your stories and sharing your time with us, Shelby Yastro. It has been a pleasure. Thank you. It's been my pleasure, Ellen. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to this podcast from the New Books Network. Once again, I'm GP Gottlieb, 
host of New Books and Literature, and today I've been talking with Shelby Astro about his novel, Bad Lies. Join the New Books Network and learn both about my upcoming podcasts and those of other hosts in a variety of categories. Goodbye until my next conversation for the New Books Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.